studies have shown that sunlight speeds healing in hospitals, improves test scores in schools. There's a famous study in California. It improves production in a factory and sales in retail. And now studies have shown that even in a, an enclosed room, if you have a mural of nature, a stream, a pond, mountains, trees, the blood pressure of the individuals in the room goes down. It's just something that's built into our human nature. We, we, we enjoy seeing these. It's, there's a fancy name for it. It's called biophilic. We are biophilic beings. We love to see life, the seashore, the sunset, the mountains. So that's another ingredient in this environmental understanding that we now have. Innocent until proven guilty. It's a key tenet in American justice. If that tenet was practiced, however, we would ensure that people detained as they await their trials would be treated well. For decades, we have failed our citizens in this area. Our guest today is Ken Ritchie. For nearly half a century, Ken has introduced innovative design principles in jails and courtrooms to ensure the people who occupy them have a sense of dignity and are treated humanely. Ken, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Let's start out by talking about what you do. Well, I'm an architect and I specialize in the planning and design of justice facilities. Justice facilities include juvenile detention, courthouses, and adult jails. And why did you choose to get involved in this work? I went to Pratt Institute School of Architecture in the 60s. In the 60s, we believed that architecture should have a social dimension. And I did my thesis on a design of a youth detention center on Rikers Island. I interviewed the city architect. I took the ferry to Rikers Island. It was a, a real project that was on the city books. And I designed that project. And in the process of doing that, I met a man named Donald Goff. And Donald was the head of something called the Correctional Association of New York, which is a Elamasonary Association founded in 1845 to assist the families of men in prison. And Donald became my mentor. He guided me through the philosophy and knowledge of corrections. He studied in, uh, worked in the New Jersey correctional system under Lloyd McCorkle and uh, Al Elias, who were pioneers in the field in the late 40s. So when I graduated, I worked as a draftsman for a year. I hated it. I hated being in it at a desk. I wanted to be out in the wide world, and I hated taking orders. And uh, so I joined the Peace Corps. And when I got out, I started my own practice. And my first client was my mentor, Donald Goff. And we went from there. I was 27 years old, and I was an entrepreneur. Ken, can you talk about your upbringing and how that has influenced your career choice and the way you approach your work? Well, when I was 10 years old, my father was laid off from his job and he was devastated. And he was depressed for about a year, and he found a job as a, what we used to call, blue-collar worker, and he stayed there for the next 20 years. And even as a 10-year-old, I said to myself, I never want to get into a position where somebody's going to fire me. So that's why I started on my own when I was 27. Also, at the time, uh, 
all of my friends from architecture school wanted to get a job, but this architect, that architect, and so forth. And I thought, I, I don't want to be a slave in some genius's office. I, I want to do what I want to do. So that was my impetus. What did I learn growing up? Learn the value of sunlight. When I was, again, when I was 10 years old, we were evicted from a, our apartment and uh, I went house hunting in the Bronx with my mother. In those days, there were a lot of empty lots. Builders were building row houses like crazy. And she, we would travel here and there and so forth. And she would say, see, the kitchen must face east this way. This sunlight comes in in the morning and you feel good about that. And she learned it, about that from my grandfather, her father, who had a macaroni store in the South Bronx at the time or in the early days. And he would say, locate your store on the sunny side of the street. It makes people happy when they come in. So sunlight has been a theme in my practice and of design of correctional facilities. Most people think of jails as dirty, dark, dingy, noisy, smelly places. And so I had the desire to improve that. And that's my work has been aimed at that goal ever since. What, what influence does an Italian-American upbringing have on you and your work? Well, our neighborhood in Pelham Bay in the Bronx was mostly Italian. So there was a great feeling of respect that one had. One understood that there was a, a larger world out there. And I try to translate that into my architectural work. And that's one of the secrets of the success of so-called colonial architecture is that most of the buildings are what we would call background buildings. They recognize the context and they fit into the context. What changes have you seen architecturally in the, or from an architectural approach to the way we design jails? Well, I've been fortunate to have a front row seat in the changes, and the changes have been monumental, especially in the attitude of county commissioners and sheriffs. What we recognize nowadays, and it's widespread, is that people in jail, by and large, don't even belong there. We start to recognize now that jails, the way we think about jails, are obsolete. The population in jails right now is 30 to 40 percent mentally or behavioral issues driven. We closed the mental hospitals in the 70s. We thought we were doing a great thing. Lo and behold, where do these people wind up? In jail. We depopulate the jails, and lo and behold, the homeless population goes up. This is why we came up with the idea of the three-door jail. And what is the three-door jail? The three-door jail is a new idea. It's based on an idea by uh, one of my clients, Rob Green, who's now the Secretary of Corrections in Maryland. In our discussions, we came up with this idea for a new facility, which is that when you are detained by the police, they bring you uh, for intake, and you have the choice of going through three doors. One would be to detention, as we know it, right? You, you go into a cell and you're detained until trial. The second door would be diversion into justice support system. You would have magistrates in this building that would interview the person and let them out on bail, let them out on release on recognizance to a third party, and so forth. And then the third door would be deflection, deflection into the mental health system. So if it was recognized that the person was having some sort of a break or some sort of schizophrenic event, the person would be deflected into a comfortable area 
couches, chairs, and so forth for no greater than 23 hours. Meanwhile, you would work the phones and try to find their, where they live, next of kin, or some support group, a community home. Chances are these people have forgotten to take their meds and got into some trouble on the street with the police and so on. So it's the three-door jail, detention, diversion, or deflection. It's a way of dealing with recognizing the uh, diversity of the population flowing through, at this point in time, the justice system. Since I got into the, this practice, and like I said, in 1969, my first convention, the jail design is much more humanitarian now. It's much more, I would say, needs-focused rather than risk-focused. That is to say, we look at the person holistically. They have medical needs. They're diabetic. They're this, they're that. They, are, they have, they say, somatic needs and, and psychic needs. They, they have behavioral issues. So there's a recognition of needs versus risk. And as a result, the, this idea of the direct supervision has taken root. The officer is embedded in the housing unit with the detainees, and the officer interacts with the individuals. The individuals get up in the morning. They do their meds. They make their appointments to court. They have their meals. They, they get a little recreation. Sunlight is coming into the day room, and everything is calm and quiet, and the officer is under control. The inmates feel safe because they feel someone is in control, and there have been studies to prove that. And the officer feels safe because she's been trained in a lot of rigorous training in terms of not only security and procedures and laws and so forth, but just the interactions. Could you talk a little bit about how environment influences behavior in a jail? Yes, environment cues behavior. Uh, if you put someone in a cage, they'll act like an animal and you will perceive them as an animal. If we have a more, what I'm going to call normative environment, where you treat it as a human being, the studies have shown you get better behavior. Now, given human nature, we also help improve behavior by having cameras and video cameras in the, in the facilities and it improves the behavior of the inmates as well as the, in, the correctional officers they know they're, on, they're, going, they're being taped. And those tapes, digital record is maintained for a long time, years in fact. And so it's cut down on violence. We, we've seen this in our time after time in our facilities. The ingredients of this environmental upgrades would be sunlight. Sunlight hitting the floor would be noise control with acoustic treatment, would be bright colors, not garish colors, but bright colors, softer materials. So we use fabric chairs but they're weighted chairs. They have sandbags embedded in them, so you can't pick them up and throw them. And of course, good sight lines. So the, the officer knows at all times where everyone is. There are no blind corners. There are no long corridors. The officer is in control. And that is the key ingredient of this direct supervision. Oh, I'm sorry. The other part of the environment is also maintaining a 72-degree temperature year in and year out. And being in that environment cues a much higher level of behavior. There's less aggression. There's less tension. There's less adrenaline. That's basically what it is. And, and studies have shown that sunlight speeds healing in hospitals, improves test scores in schools. There's a famous study in California. It improves production in a factory and sales in retail. And now studies have shown that even in a, an enclosed room, if you have a mural of nature, a stream, a pond, mountains, trees, the blood pressure of the individuals in the room goes down. It's just something that's built into our human nature. 
we 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 enjoy seeing these it's there's a fancy name for it it's called biophilic the so-called green design for office space puts the private offices inboard with glass fronts and puts the worker bees shall we say in cubicles or workstations outboard adjacent to the window wall of the building I, I want to ask about Rikers because I think a lot of people will at, at least have heard of Rikers Island. Could you describe what the conditions were like when it was 22,000 people? And then uh, maybe we can go to what uh, these borough jails will be like in, in contrast to what it was like at its peak. It's an island. And there were many, many buildings on this island, some going back to the 1920s. And over a period of time, a variety of of buildings were built until the early 80s when there was tremendous growth in incarceration. And they didn't even build buildings. They erected tents, basically. They were fabric buildings in like an airplane hangar. And there were rows and rows and rows of inmates sleeping on cots. But the facilities themselves, the buildings, were of a vintage from the... I'm going to say from the 1940s, telephone plan, we would call it. So imagine a long corridor, and off of that corridor were other corridors, and each of those corridors had two rows of cells, one above the other. Now, these long corridors, when the population grew, they added onto the corridors. So the corridors were, no exaggeration, thousands of feet long. So the impression that you had going through the buildings was an anthill, where you were just an insignificant little ant in this giant anthill. And it was noisy, it was dirty, it was dark, and it was dangerous. But the real problem at Rikers was twofold. Number one, the overcrowding. And number two, just the island location. If you think about it, an island, or the root word, insula, is isolated. And that's what they were. So there was a dehumanizing element to the entire place. With that in mind, if if the behaviors of the people who are locked up are going to turn to, to be animalistic, then aren't the behaviors of the people who are in charge of keeping them under control going to change as well? Yes. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you, that's the perception. In fact, one of the, the architects for the Department of Corrections, as, as we were designing one of the facilities recently, a replacement facility in Brooklyn, said, you have to remember, we have different categories. We have lions, we have tigers, and we have uh, wolves. What? That's the way you think of your clientele? That was the, that's the mentality, and it went unquestioned. And, and to be fair, the Rikers Island was swept under the carpet was ignored by all of the elected officials for years and years and years. There's no, there was no political benefit to spending money there. They, the, the administrations only did it because of the court orders and the, and the overcrowding. So why are people doing it now? Good question. The reason for the current movement now is, is having to do with the deaths on Rikers Island as a result of poor conditions, overheated conditions, people who are on medication dying because their, their cell lacked air conditioning, and a, a lot of brutality. And it came to people's attention about 10 years ago, eight years ago. Right now, there is a broad consensus that Rikers Island needs to be closed. That consensus is by 
certainly by the current administration, but also by the academia, business community, the foundations, the not-for-profits, the advocates. It's widespread. It's across the board. So I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. I think this will happen. What form it will take remains to be seen. Right now, it's four, four jails and four boroughs. Today's guest is Ken Ritchie. When we come back from this short break, Ken will talk about what the correctional facility of the future will look like. Hi, everybody. This is your podcast host, Don McPherson. At 12 Geniuses, we write, report, and speak about the trends shaping the way we live and work. As we look toward entering a new decade, technologies like 3D printing, artificial intelligence, gene editing, and more and more sophisticated robots will continue to disrupt and change our society. If these trends are important to you, we invite you to follow us on social media. And to book me to speak at your next event, contact us at future at 12geniuses.com. We are back with Ken Ritchie. In this segment, we will discuss how women's correctional facilities are being designed with motherhood in mind, why courtroom design is critical to fair trial outcomes, and what the ideal size of a correctional facility is. How do you balance between safety and security and creating an environment that's ethical, humane, and stabilizing? Right. That's the architect's challenge, uh, balancing between an environment that's ethical and humane and safety and security. So you start with safety and security. You start by, and, and this is where we have built a reputation as planners also, of doing a, a analysis of your population to establish the various levels of risk and need. And so we, by, by and large, can show that in the jail setting, that 60 to 70% of the population can live in a direct supervision environment. There is a percentage, 10%, 15%, who are predatory. So you can, you can, so we've done this analysis. And at first, sheriffs were skeptical. They, they said, none of my people will work in these facilities. But the correctional officers love it because it's air-conditioned and it's safe and so forth. So, so this direct supervision idea that we've discussed earlier, this idea of environment cues behavior, is something that we've been able to convince our clients is actually a benefit. And buying these new ideas does not cost more, will be safer for inmate and for officer, and will have better outcomes, actually. So it, it does not cost more. The, the design that you're talking about will not cost taxpayers more money. No. Could it be argued that it actually saves money if there are fewer lawsuits or... That's a that's a good way to look at it. Government doesn't work that way. I, I understand yeah. that, but 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 society does. Yeah, right. And we should think about it in yeah. that way. And, no, the correctional and the correctional be uh, you know the correctional administrators certainly uh, value that they want a safe facility. The clients, when I talk about the clients, call them county commissioners, don't really know what's going on in jail, and and this is part of the, we we go through a rigorous planning before we start designing. So we, we call it project definition, and it opens a lot of eyes. Do you see a distinction in the way you design between male facilities and female facilities? Yes. And what would those distinctions be? Well, first of all, there are a lot fewer females in, in these facilities than males. I would say it's maybe 10%. If you have 10% of the population, there still are various 
categories of risk and need that have to be accommodated. I think, by and large, women are uh, more gregarious. We have to also remember that most women, and many of the men, have had traumatic histories starting at young age, whether it's sexual or physical or psychological trauma. We have to bear that in mind. It's called trauma-informed design. And so you try to create an environment that is improves sociability. We actually have now in units, we'll have a, a nursery so that if a, a woman comes in who's pregnant, they will give birth and they can stay with their child for a period of time, three months, four months, six months, eight months. So where you have large groups of women, that's, that's feasible. When you have smaller groups, it becomes more of a design challenge, but you can, you can do it. And women socialize differently than men, so you have to take that into account. You know, dormitories, group, group cells where you have four beds in a, in a room or eight beds in a room. So there's a lot of discussion about that. There are other people that are much more expert than I am. And that's, why we, that's why we have a staff of 40 people in the firm. Is the identification of somebody who's gone through trauma or have, has experienced tra- traumatic events, is that done during the three-door process? Yeah, intake, intake usually takes place over a period of days. It's not just a two-hour thing. So it's a, over a period of days. A, a solid intake process would take that long, and that and some of that would emerge, so that the uh, so that the whatever altercation the person got involved in could be put into perspective. I want to make sure that I understood this correctly. Do the the babies live on site, or yes, they do. Yes, yes, that's incredible. Yeah. So, what sort of frequency are the mothers able to see? Oh, they 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 live no, they together. live with they're them. integrated they live with them. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be like. In fact, on Rikers, there's a nursery. It's actually not bad. There's there's sort of a central room, and then there are rooms where the mothers and the child sleep, and then there's a central room where there's activities during the day. And the mothers have to do certain things, go to court or see their lawyer, whatever. So there's the equivalent of daycare. Okay. And these babies would be living there for months at a time? Yeah. Potentially? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What does that do to their development? Well, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I th- I think it's just common sense that a newborn wants to be with his or her mother and even more than a newborn. So that's a very critical time in development. So it's a very touchy situation. It's a very difficult choice because on the one hand, you're putting them in this facility that may not be the ideal environment for them. The other hand, you'd be pulling them away from the mother. Well, you try to, exactly. But you, but I would say the ideal environment is to be close to your mother. Everything else is... Yeah, all things is, considered. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, all things I considered. But, you're right. Yeah, but the, again, there's, 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 you know, there's bright colors, there's, there's toys, there's different areas. If it's designed correctly. If it's designed correctly. <laughs> right. But there, there's, yeah. Can, can you talk about some of the things that you're, that are important when designing a court? and some of the things that are, are innovative in that space. So there is a lot of development. There are a lot of people that go to court are appear pro se, which is, which is to say they represent themselves, whether it's divorce or family court. And family court is the large growth area. So an amazing statistic is that regardless of the level of the court system, only three to four percent of all cases go to trial. That's 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 incredible. So the diet of courtroom dramas that we have on TV, <laughs> and when you watch the TV, you know the the 
they compress the time frame. You know, there's there's an event, there's an arrest, there's a they they go to court. That that takes years in, in some instances, but only three to four percent of cases go to trial, partially because of the sluggish nature of the system, and people game the system. So what to do about that? So where the new design, the new idea for courthouses, in my estimation, is that the the courtroom should be the last place that you go rather than the first place. And there are a lot of systems that are embracing this idea. In other words, if you go to court, the first thing you do is to talk to a hearing officer. What's the issue here and so forth? Can we mediate? Can we arbitrate? Then you go before another hearing officer. So in other words, to, to get people to settle their differences. And if that doesn't work, then you see a judge. In fact, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Franklin County, Judge Fry there said, I want my chambers to be an active area. I want to have par- I want to have the various parties be able to sit here in conference rooms. So I don't see my chambers as a refuge from the hustle and bustle, tumble of the courthouse. I see it as a, as a place where, where I'm managing my caseload. They had caseload would typically be 15,000 cases per year per judge. Do the math. Yeah, yeah. Trying. It's yeah, about it's fifty yeah. a day or more. I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's so. Of course, they try to mitigate that by having magistrates because judges are assigned by the legislature. You just can't go out and hire another judge. But Judge Fry said, I, "I want my chambers to have my office, my secretary. Then I want three conference areas. I want a Xerox machine. I want a coffee pot. I want some couches, some sofas. I bring the parties in here. They come to court before they come in. I'll bring them in here." Go in that room and settle. If you can't settle, then we'll set a date. And I go in and I work with them a little bit. And, and he said, that's how I handle my caseload. So it's a new idea. What does the lack of sunlight or even windows or anything or any visuals in a courtroom other than wood and benches do to, to an, the ability to, number one, stay present? Because I think the, the judge and you know, certainly the defendant wants the jury to be present yes. and listening to the facts. I, doesn't seem like an optimal, optimal environment for a really important decision-making. You're right. The most beautiful courtroom I've seen was designed probably in the 1890s or so forth in, in Hartford, Connecticut. And there, the, you know, the, of course, there's high ceilings, but the, there was a band of windows around one end of the one side of the courtroom, the long side of the courtroom, under which the jury sat. And also the criminal court at 100 Center Street in New York City has a similar setup where the, the, there's a band of windows in each courtroom, and the courtrooms have to be arranged and planned so that they're sort of bookended, so that they have a free, what we call a free, free surface on the exterior. So it, it's expensive to design a courtroom with windows because it takes up more area. but we we attempt to get light into our courtrooms any which way we can. Sometimes we bring it in over the judge's bench. Sometimes we bring it in over the front door. So, yes, we agree with you. You should be at least able to see the sky, to see the quality of sunlight change over the course of the day, right? So you know what time it is. And you bring up an interesting topic also in terms of the jury. And the, the chief judge of New York State years ago, Justice, Justice Kay, had the jury project where she insisted that all of the state 
courtrooms, courthouses, upgrade the jury experience. So technology, which we you referenced earlier, is a big factor in, in, in courthouse design. For example, traffic court, no need to appear to pay your ticket. You can have a kiosk. And in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, we designed a courtroom, just courthouse just like that. It's an old shop, a shopping center. So you pull up in front, you walk in, there's a big lobby. You look at the, the monitor, where's your case? And uh, there's, there are kiosks. You can go there and pay your fine if you don't want to, if you don't want to uh, challenge it. And you walk down a long corridor and go into a courtroom. But so there's that kind of technology. There's also one jury, jury assignment. One of the big complaints about jury assignment is you go there, you sit there all day, you don't get selected. Come back the next day, it's a big waste of time. Some jurisdictions have one, one juror, one day. You go there, if you don't get selected, you go home. This is a, probably more of a question around prisons, but it may have some application around jails as well. What's the ideal size of a facility and when does it get to be you know what's the yeah. break what's the break point the thinking used to be that uh, that 500 beds was or you could call it the optimal number because you had economies of scale whereas 200 300 you, d- you didn't but as one administrator said i want it to be not so big that i don't know everybody's name now that's old school to walk around and know everybody's name if you were to look out 10 years what would you how would you see the ideal correctional facility oh, looking? You could read my article in the American yeah, well, Jail Magazine. Plug yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. American Jail Magazine. Yeah, Jail of the Future. Okay, what, what does the Jail of the Future look like? The Jail of the Future is uh, smaller, smarter, greener, and kinder. The jail as we know it is, as I said, is obsolete. So it's smaller because we have more mechanisms for filtering and for diverting and deflecting into the mental health system. It's smarter because it uses technology, whether it's uh, video visitation or that kind of thing. It's greener. So we want it to be, you know, we might have some uh, gardens where we, we might recycle the brown water and use it for horticultural. And it's kinder. That is to say, it's designed with more humane features in mind. Sunlight, air conditioning, acoustics, good sight lines. What kind of pushback do you have from whether it's citizens or politicians who say, you know, these guys, women, are, are criminals. We can't treat them humanely. Years ago, we would see that. I mentioned earlier, air conditioning for these guys, it's too good for them. But I have to say that over the years, I think attitudes have evolved. I think there's a recognition that, that the closure of the mental health system has resulted in, in diverting this population into the jail system, and they don't belong there. Yes, they maybe they, they, they resisted arrest. Uh, okay, so they were off their meds. And when you really scratch the surface, most of us know somebody who's been in jail, and you wouldn't want them to be treated, you know, want them to be treated in the right way. So now with jails, there is a body of law that protects the rights of a person who's not been convicted the, in terms of access to medical care, environment, and hygiene, and, and nutrition. And there are widespread voluntary standards, National Sheriff's Association, American Correctional Association, American Jail Association. And there's a professionalism now in the, in the correctional field that is quite high, actually. 
So there's a recognition that the, that the jail is just a repository for a lot of people that can't make it otherwise. And when we think we've solved one problem, mental health, the population shows up in the jails. Not right. It's not right. There was something that you said very early on that really struck a chord with me, and that's around human potential. Yeah. With people who are in these facilities for months and months, how can we not hit the pause button on their human potential? How are we designing our, our jails in order to enable them to, to reach their human potential? In the jail setting, one of the key tenets also of, of, we call it the social dimension, is to allow a certain amount of territorial control for the individual. There are some people who argue that it's, it's, they'd rather have being a cell than being a dorm because they can control their stuff and they can modify their, their environment, so to speak. But developing human potential, and, and again, I think the, the, as the emphasis has shifted from risk, is this person medium, minimum, or maximum, the emphasis has shifted to need. What does this person need? How can we help them while they're here in a short period of time? So, for example, there's a program called Restart for people who are about to enter the free world, and they spend six hours a day in programming. And so treatment is not just, you know, with an eyedropper. It's a series, a continual series of classes and exposure to activities for daily living. So, for example, you and I take for granted the alarm clock goes off, we get up, we clean up, and we show up. A lot of people have not been brought up that way. And so just that alone is, is part of developing human potential. In terms of just how to do that? How Le- to do the, that. The life skills. How of, to do yeah. that. Yeah. You have to get out of bed. You have to show up. You have to be, you have to clean up and you have to show up. So there's that rudimentary kind of thing, learning the, the I think you called it earlier, emotional intelligence. A lot of the lessons that help us to succeed in the world are learned around the dining room table or the kitchen table. So it's one thing to get a GED, but it's another thing to learn how to be responsible, you know, if you're in and do what you're supposed to do and show up when you're supposed to show up. Or could you just name a handful of projects that you've worked on and some of the, the achievements that you're most proud of? Well, there's the Union County Juvenile Detention Facility, which received a World Architecture News World Effectiveness Award, being a being a, we were one of two, so that's we're pretty proud of that. Global, there was a global competition, and we we demonstrated that the, you know, our response to the program was this the building and the environments that we created. So, yeah, I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of all the buildings that we're doing because I think they have a social dimension, a humane dimension. That's what we're noted for. The Denver Jail, the jail in Denver, Van Size Simonet Detention Center. Proud of that because it's, uh, you know, modern jails make good neighbors. And this building proved that. We were, along with another firm, they designed the courthouse. We we actually worked on the courthouse as well. And we designed the jail with a local firm. And this is is a centerpiece of downtown Denver, the the civic zone. You have the state house and you have the city hall and you have the near uh, the, the the federal mint and then you have our buildings and uh, and, a, and a central civic plaza so it was a building that was in that was a civic building it created a civic space and it's a terrific 
jail in terms of the way it's organized. So I'm very proud of that. How does it feel to design a building that's going to potentially outlast you? Yeah, it feels good, right? We're supposed to do that. Well, Ken, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate all the time that you've given me. And Ken, thank you for being a genius. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> I'd be surprised how many people say that. <laughs> thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Thanks also to the amazing team that makes this show possible. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Ryan Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are top-notch. To learn how 12 Geniuses can prepare leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, please go to 12geniuses.com.